invite you this morning to open your Bibles up with me to the very first book of the Bible. And we're still chugging through chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 20 through 25 this morning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light, that it was good, and he divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. The first day there is very distinct from the other days. The first day is what all of the other days are modeled after. Day one, he creates light. He speaks it into existence, and he divides that light from the darkness. Day two, the firmament he set in place to divide the waters below from the waters above. Day three, he made dry land appear, and he created vegetation. Vegetation would be the first piece of life, as we think of it, that uses the genetic code. So on day three, the genetic code was also created. Day four, he created light bearers, sun, moon, and he made the stars also. Now we come to verse 20, and this starts us in day five. And in day five, we'll see the sea creatures and the birds created. And we'll get through half of day six today as well, when the land animals were created. Let's read from verse 20 through 25 together, and then we'll go back through it. Verse 20, then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And that takes us halfway through the sixth day. Now, back up to verse 20. Then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of heaven, of the heavens. And first, I want us to notice that the birds are flying across the face of the firmament. And last week, we identified this firmament as the first heaven, which is the atmosphere of the earth. And the fact that birds fly in that firmament is a testament to the fact that we've identified that correctly. The birds definitely don't fly in outer space, 
but they do fly in the atmosphere of the earth. Then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. On this fifth day of the creation week, God created all of the sea creatures and all of the birds that would inhabit the earth. This living creatures is translated from the Hebrew nefesh. And this is a really interesting word. This word has a wide range of possible definitions based on its context, but it's actually most often translated soul, nefesh. And it, it's speaking of the soul of man or of animal. It has also been translated life, creature, mind, heart, and other miscellaneous translations that all have to do with this one basic thing, life. And conscious life. Unlike the plants that had already been created, these animals the sea creatures and the birds here were conscious life forms distinct from the plants. And this distinction between this new class of life is solidified in the very next verse. In verse 21, so God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. You won't pick it up in the English but back in verse 11, when God said, let the earth bring forth grass, herbs, and trees, it wasn't creative. It was a forming of the grass, herbs, and trees. He brought those things out. He sprouted them out of the ground using elements that were already there. He doesn't just assemble these living creatures. He creates them, bara. If you remember that word bara, it's the same one that was used in verse 1. God created the heavens and the earth. There is some type of new creation involved in making these animals. The principle of consciousness could not be developed by simply arranging existing elements into a complex structure. Consciousness required something other than the matter and energy that already existed in the universe. It required this act of new creation. This act of creation specifically implied by the verb bara can be seen as the creation of the living soul, nefesh. And that would become an integral part of every animal and eventually every man. Notice that in verses 24 and 25, when God creates land animals, there is no mention of another act of special creation. Bara is not found in those verses. In other words, all the constituent parts required to fashion land animals were already in existence after he had made the sea creatures and the birds. These animals share the same consciousness as the sea animals and the birds. And consciousness clearly separates 
plants from animals. Now, there's some wild ideas going around about plants actually having consciousness. We're going to look at this from a biblical perspective, and we're going to find that, no, they actually don't. Plants do not have consciousness. Uh, there are these experiments that, that set classical music to play around plants, and they experience greater growth. Now, that's interesting, but that's actually not because they're hearing and understanding what's going on and growing better, but it actually causes a physiological reaction in the plants. The tone is such that it opens their stomata, and they actually experience better growth. So it's, it has nothing to do with consciousness, but more to do with the vibrations of the music itself. So consciousness is clearly separating plants from animals. And we'll make a biblical case for this this morning. The Bible draws a very clear line of distinction between these two classes of organisms. And the Bible requires that an organism satisfy three criteria to be considered living. The three requirements of life, nefesh, if you will, are one, consciousness, two, respiration, and three, blood. Those are the three requirements. Consciousness, we've already discussed a little bit, but the word nefesh frequently is translated soul. And the word translated soul in Greek is psyche. It's all talking about a very similar type of thing, consciousness. So the organism must be conscious of itself and its surroundings. That's the first requirement. Second requirement for being living is respiration. The organism has to utilize some system for gas exchange. This is described in the Bible as the breath of life. We see that over and over. It's used to describe animals and humans, but never plants. We can see Genesis 2-7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. Genesis 6-17. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Genesis 7:15. And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two, of all flesh, in which is the breath of life. And the same kind of holds true if you just look at the word breath alone. And there are a few examples of that. First Kings 17:17. 17, 17. I'm not going to read all of these. Ecclesiastes 3, 19, and 21. Now, I want you to pay attention if you look at that verse in Ecclesiastes. The author of Ecclesiastes is talking about life apart from God, life in the natural. So just keep that, that context in mind when you read that verse. The context of Ecclesiastes is that all is vanity without God. And the author's talking only about the natural in those verses. What is the third requirement of life in the Bible? Blood. 
Leviticus 17, 11 says that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And not only is that true spiritually, which it certainly is, it's also true physically. We know that the life of the flesh is in the blood. So these are the three requirements to be considered living by the Bible. And plants don't meet these requirements. Very simple. And there's actually some types of beans that technically have hemoglobin that helps transfer oxygen and do some things. So maybe they might require or satisfy that requirement. But that's only one type of plant, and it's a very um, fringe case. So I just thought that was interesting. (laughs) Y'all don't have to pay attention to that. And while we're on the broader subject of the distinction between plants and animals, I want to take a second to clarify the biblical ideas surrounding death. So we can certainly glean a lot from looking at how the Bible views life, but we can also glean something from looking at the other side of that, which is death. And we would, we would expect some consistency there. If the Bible doesn't consider plants living, then we would generally expect that it wouldn't consider them as being able to die. And that's actually what we see. Um, it's consistent through the whole Bible, through the Hebrew and the Greek. We can also glean much about how God views these segments of his creation by studying how he made them. Um, we'll also look at this other side of life, which is death. And the Bible in both the Old and the New Testaments treat the death of plants very differently from the death of animals and man. And this also tells us that there's something inherently different about them. In English, we use the word die or death to describe the loss of life for both plants and animals. And for the purpose of this discussion, we're going to lump man in with animals, but not exactly the same, but for this we will. In fact, the 1911 Encyclopedia Britannica defines death as the permanent cessation of the vital functions in the bodies of animals and plants, the end of life or act of dying. So it's very clear, even in dictionary definitions, we use the word death to talk about plants and animals. So the biblical languages approach death slightly differently. Hebrew uses one primary word to talk about death, which is mut. And this is primarily used to speak of the loss of human life, but it's also used for animals. There's only one time you'll see it used in the Old Testament seemingly to refer to plants, and that's Job 14.8. And we'll look at that in a second. But concerning plants, the Old Testament text usually uses a term like wither or fade. It's different from moot, death. Isaiah 48, that is chapter 40, verse 8, is a convenient example because it employs both of those terms. It says the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The New Testament primarily uses two Greek words to refer to death. 
Thanatos and Necros. Thanatos is more generic, and it's used to convey both physical death and spiritual death. Necros is either used of physical death or used metaphorically of something that becomes useless. James 2.17 gives us a good example of the metaphorical use of necros. Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's useless. That doesn't mean that it was necessarily living in the biological sense, but it's useless. Faith without works is dead. So like the Old Testament, the New Testament doesn't use these words to describe plants, except in two places that we'll look at. John 12, 24, and Jude 12. The only two times that you'll you'll find either of these words used of plants. And if you look at these passages that seem to claim that plants can die you'll find that all of them are actually used as an analogy comparing humanity to plants. You may want to jot these references down to take a look at. I'll give them to you again. The Old Testament is Job 14.8. The New Testament is John 12.24 and Jude 12. And all of these three passages use plants as a point of comparison to communicate a deeper meaning about humanity. So they're not saying this in a biological sense. You'll see that as you look into those passages. So what can we take from all of that? There's a couple of really important things. One, this idea that the Bible doesn't refer to plants as dying strengthens the position that they're not living in the same sense that animals and humans are consciously living. The second point that this helps to clarify is what is meant when Paul says that through one man sin entered the world and death, that's Thanatos, through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. It's Romans 5.12. Some people have trouble with the fact that God gave the plants to Adam and Eve for food because they see Adam eating the plants and they think death before the fall. You see, so that would create an issue if it was in fact death that we were seeing. But Adam and Eve eating plants is not considered death because plants are not considered to be alive. That's that's interesting. And it ties this all together. The purpose of plants to begin with was to be food. We see that in chapter 2. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves, with which the waters abounded. Great sea creatures here is translated from tanim, which can refer to either sea or land monsters. It's most often translated as dragon, which is interesting. This term seems to include all large sea creatures, even the now extinct monsters of the past, tanim. 
We know that this usage of tenim is referring to sea creatures as opposed to land creatures because of its context. And every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded. And that obviously covers the rest of marine life that might not have been included in the term tenim. And these were created according to their kind. You remember that phrase from when we went over the plants, according to their kind. It's a very important phrase, and it's used ten times in the first chapter of Genesis. And all the birds were created according to their kind, and God saw that it was good. So it's good. God's not going to call sin and death good. Here, it is good. Verse 22. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Something special happens here that we haven't yet seen in this creation account. God blesses his creation. He blesses these sea creatures and birds. Though they wouldn't become objects of his affection like man would, animals are objects of God's care and concern. Jesus says that not even a sparrow will fall without God noticing and caring. And he continually provides for them. That's in Matthew 10.29 and 6.26. This blessing also included a command. And that command is to be fruitful and multiply. This command would again be given to the creatures that came out of the ark after the flood in Genesis 8.17. Man would be given a similar command but he would be told to fill the earth and subdue it. Man was given dominion over the rest of God's creation. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have you noticed that the order of creation in Genesis is different from the accepted evolutionary order of events? Evolution says that marine creatures came first, then land plants, then birds. The Genesis account of creation puts land plants and then marine creatures and birds simultaneously. It's very different. Verse 23, so the evening and the morning were the fifth day. So that wraps up the fifth day of the creation week. Verse 24 begins the sixth and final day of creation. In it, God will create land animals, and human beings. And this morning, we're just going to look at the land animals, and we'll save man for next week. Day 6, verse 24. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. This short list of animal categories is no doubt intended to be comprehensive. Cattle probably refers to domesticable animals, 
beast of the earth probably refers to large wild animals and creeping thing probably refers to all animals that crawl or creep close to the ground, smaller animals. And it's interesting that even the way God organizes his creatures here is in a way relative to man's interests. The domesticable animals, the wild animals, and the little ones that crawl close to the ground. Verse 25. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Now I hope that you notice verse 25 flies directly in the face of evolutionary theory. It says that God brought forth every living creature according to its kind. It doesn't even say that God created one creature and then all of the other creatures descended from it. No, God created each kind. And they reproduce after their own kind. There's a little graphic that I like to illustrate the point of kinds and the two views on the origin of life. We're going to picture rivers of life, not the same river of life in Revelation. Different one. So in evolutionary theory, the river would look like this flowing down to different kinds of animals. They would all branch off from one common ancestor. Something like this. Okay, So you have all of the animals that we see today being able to trace back to one common ancestor. They talk about it being a bacteria of some sort. Creation looks like this, with several of these rivers each flowing into their own species. These are the created animals, and they branch off, they take on different traits, different characteristics, and they end up being what we see today. So fundamentally different, the river can only flow this way. It can't go back because you've lost information as you go down. These creatures contain all the genetic information necessary for each one of these creatures down towards the bottom. But these creatures on the bottom don't contain the necessary information to get back to this guy. That information was lost in the process. So these are fundamental differences between these two approaches to the formation of life. And I like to picture it that way because it kind of gives you this idea that like, things are a little bit different than when they were created, but they didn't all come from the same bacteria. Now, I want to take a second to clarify what we're talking about when we use the term evolution, because 
there are some hairy definitions in there. When we say evolution, we usually mean macroevolution. And that's the idea that animals can somehow evolve into new animals over long periods of time. Macroevolution has never been observed, only theorized. But there is another term called microevolution, which actually just refers to the variation we see among individuals of certain species. We can observe microevolution. We can see that a wolf and a poodle are very different in their physical traits. And that represents the variation within a species, but they're both the same species. And this is a very easy way to see the difference between these two terms. In a certain amount of time, I can breed a wolf to have shorter legs, more skin folds, a shorter snout, shorter hair, and big old jowls. That's called a bulldog. <laughs> but I can't breed a wolf to have webbed feet, a bill, and wings, which I would call a duck. You know, we can't do that. There is a limit to the variation we find within a species, or as we would look biblically, in a kind. And the real issue here is one of information. It comes down to information. Complex, specified information simply cannot be generated by chance and natural laws. It doesn't work. It's an impossibility. That means that once the river flows down, it can't flow back up. When you see these changes occur within a species, it's because a certain trait has been selected for. And you select by the death of the non-selected. Implicit in that very word selected is this idea that that information was already there to be selected. It had to be. All selection does is select for the expression of a certain beneficial trait after it's already been expressed. And to be expressed, the information has to be there already. For example, let's suppose that a wolf represented God's creation of dog kind. So at the top, we have a wolf. And I don't know if that's the case, but we'll use it for the purpose of this example. And that means that a wolf would be there at the top of the river. A poodle is also a dog, but it came along way down here somewhere. Maybe even down here. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Much after the wolf. That wolf had to be bred to select for certain traits. And through many generations of selective breeding, mind you, this still requires an intelligent direction, we have a poodle. Now, suppose I had a poodle, but I wanted a wolf. Could I breed that poodle to get a wolf? The answer is no. 
you can't because you've selected for that poodle and it's lost a lot of that information that the wolf once had. And it really all boils down to this problem of information. When you're looking at the origin of life, you're really looking at the origin of information. Where does information come from? DNA contains complex, specified information that acts as a code to build proteins necessary for life. You can't have life without the information that's present in DNA. So where did that information come from originally? That's the big question that origin of life researchers have to grapple with. That's the question they need to answer right now. There's the popular idea that this information came about by chance and necessity. Those are the terms that they will use. This idea tries to remove an intelligent creator from the conversation. Just remove it altogether. If things could just assemble themselves by themselves in this orderly manner that produces life, then no creator would be necessary. The only problem is that's never been done before. If you want to talk about chance, what is the chance of assembling one functional protein through no directed processes in this prebiotic soup that they suppose covered the earth? What are the chances of assembling one functional protein of modest length? We're not talking about anything crazy here in the protein world. That chance is 1 in 10 raised to the 164th power. And even if you have a protein, you don't have life. You need about 250 proteins to service a simple, single-celled organism. So you multiply that probability of 10 to the 164th by 250. That means that the probability that you would create all of these proteins undirected to service just one cell would be 1 in 10 raised to the 41,000th power. We can't imagine that number. We just can't imagine it. We all know what an atom is, right? An atom makes up... No, no, no. Eight... <laughs> Good one. A-T- <laughs> A-T-O-M, atom, that makes up a molecule, there's about 10 to the 82nd power atoms in the universe. The probability of getting those 250 proteins is one out of 10 raised to the 41,000th power. There, there is no language to describe that number. That is, it is actually mathematically impossible. That's what it comes down to. It's a mathematical impossibility. DNA is a digital code. And digital codes derive their meaning from arbitrary but consistent definitions. And we call that semantics. Language works this way. 
DNA is a type of language. If I write the letters M, A, N, that communicates something to you. It communicates an idea, but not because those letters, those pen strokes, have any intrinsic meaning to them. It's because you and I both agree on their meaning, and we apply it consistently to communicate. If I write those letters, it means man, and it communicates an idea to you. That's a digital code. DNA works the same way, and DNA uses these letters to convey an idea, specifically an outcome of which amino acids to string together to fold it up and then become a protein. A codon codes for a specific amino acid to be produced. And digital codes cannot happen by accident. They just don't happen by chance. They are absolute evidence of design. Paul Revere in the, the church, the code that they decided on was one by land, two by sea. Is that right? Okay. So no matter what kind of supercomputer the British had, they could not decode that code because it was based on something arbitrary that two people had agreed upon beforehand. There's no way to crack that code. It's the same type of thing that we see in DNA. It's arbitrary, but it's consistently applied, which allows for life. That is an absolute evidence of design. And if you haven't heard of this term, I want to introduce it to you. Irreducible complexity. Which came first? The protein or the DNA? That's a trick question. Because it takes proteins to make DNA, but it takes DNA to make the proteins. That's an example of irreducible complexity. You can't break it down any further and have any kind of functioning machine. You can't have them come together piece by piece, one at a time, because it takes both for this whole system to function. They had to come together simultaneously. You look at an engine in your car. If one belt breaks off, the whole thing doesn't work. That's an example of irreducible complexity. You can't evolve a belt and then evolve some pistons and hope that they come together in the right way. Evolution is like saying that a tornado could go through a junkyard and assemble a fully functional 747. It would be fantastic to watch, but it just doesn't happen. It simply doesn't happen. Have you ever heard an ecologist say that all the different species need all the other species to survive? This concept of biodiversity and interdependence? I wonder who designed it that way in the first place. How could you have evolved a system that's dependent on itself? Now, we went from really small now to really big. There's questions all throughout this scale. 
why is everybody concerned about a species going extinct if there's evolution going on? We're just selecting for the best fit organisms. Why is everybody concerned about that? Here's the thing. An intelligent agent, and we know him, it's God, is the only known cause of complex specified information, the kind that we find in every single cell. There has been no other observed cause for this kind of information. I'll give you one more example. You have the game Scrabble, and you put all of your pieces in a little bag. You shake it up real good, and you pull one letter out at a time and set it on your desk. What are the odds that it's going to give you something that actually contains meaning? It's not very high. It is remotely possible. You could pull out an M, then an A, then an N, and it could tell you something. But it's not likely. Now, that M, A, and N contains the same probability of being picked as any other three-letter combination. So if I picked out a T, a W, and a J, that means nothing to us, but it has the same probability of picking any other three letters, the M, A, and the N. So the probability of any certain outcome doesn't necessarily tip us off to the fact that it was designed. There's another layer to that, though. There's specified complex information. Specified complex information accomplishes something. There is some sort of end to it. Like if I spelled man. Outside of this game of language, there's a meaning to it. It means a male human. There's meaning imposed on the letters from outside of the letters themselves. If I picked any, you know, however long you want this DNA sequence to be, that would be a very rare occurrence, a very rare event. But to have that rare of an event that accomplishes a purpose is not possible other than through an intelligent designer. And I'll wrap up this morning with a colorful illustration for you. There was a new guy that just took over the empire. This new emperor, he wanted to assert his dominance and he wanted to do so by wearing the most fabulous clothing that ever was designed. So he called up his tailor into the court and he said, Mr. Taylor, I need you to make me the best looking clothes in the whole kingdom. No one will question my authority when they look at me. If you can't do that, off with your head. Stakes are high. The tailor comes back to him and he says, Sir, I have 
found this wonderful thread. It's invisible. <laughs> this invisible thread can only be seen by the brightest, wisest, most sophisticated in the kingdom. The king says, oh, wonderful. Make me a, a coat out of it. Comes back with the coat. King puts it on. Comes back with a whole costume made from this invisible thread. Only the wisest can see. The king puts it on, wants to go show it off, of course. Rides out on his chariot, proud to display his new clothes. Everybody's like, wow, that's wonderful. All these supposedly sophisticated intellectuals. Some farmer on the side of the road says, hey, why is the king naked? You fool. How come you can't see these wonderful garments? The fool pointed out the obvious. And now <laughs> this illustrates this idea of the intellectual elite promoting evolutionary thought. It was much easier just to go along with Darwin's ideas before we had such an understanding of the cell, and more specifically, an understanding of the information contained in DNA. But now, with all that we do know, which there's still plenty to learn, but with all that we do know, we can't turn a blind eye to the facts. The only known cause of specified complex information like we find in DNA is an intelligent mind. It's the emperor's new clothes all over again. All right, now we're going to zoom back out. We have just seen the earth go from formless and void to in a sphere, gravitational fields, electromagnetic and nuclear forces. We've seen it go from that, then it the firmament was created, the separation of the waters, the dry land comes out of the waters, the plants, the stars were created, the sun and moon governing the day and the night. All of this creation has taken place. And what is it for? It's to prepare a habitation for man. And I don't want to lose sight of that. At this point, at the end of verse 25, the earth is fully prepared for man's creation. God has set the stage. He's done all of the prep work necessary to bring Adam into the world. And next week, we'll look at that, starting in verse 26. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God speaking and giving man dominion over all of creation. I'm excited for that. Let's close this morning in a word of prayer. Thank mm-hmm. you.